Well, thank you, Vincent and worship team, for leading us in that time of singing. Such a blessing to sing songs that proclaim the kingship of our Lord. Just gets our mind right as we prepare to uh, go into our new series this week, or yeah, these next few weeks. So uh, it is a real blessing for me to be able to go on this journey with you all through some of the highlights of the book of Acts. And because we're going to cover large sections of the book of Acts, um, I'm just going to open us up in prayer, and we're going to go through the text. We're going to read the text as we progress through the book, okay? So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for just your kindness to us and your mercy to us, and we're grateful for the fact that this is your church, that you've established your church for your purposes. And we, by your grace, get to take a part of it. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning understand better what our role is, who we are, why we're here. And help us just to be challenged by that, to be excited by that, and to be ready to do the work that you would have us to do for the rest of our days. We're grateful, and we pray that you would just bring yourself much honor this morning in our thoughts and in our, in our attitudes. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. The book of Acts for us is a very familiar book, and while on the one hand that familiarity can be beneficial to us, it can also lead to a little bit of complacency as well. For example, we can, we can have an attitude of, why should I care about a study through the book of Acts if I know it already? I've been to Sunday school. I've been to church conferences. I've read the book of Acts. Why? Do I need to go through a study of the book of Acts? Or perhaps we can even have an attitude of this. Oh, this study isn't for me. I know it already. But I'm sure glad that there are all these other people here in church who don't know the book of Acts that well. Because then they get to know it. And they can solve all my problems. They can get out of my hair. They can stop being a thorn in my side. We have to be careful of having an attitude where we feel like we've arrived in terms of our knowledge of the scriptures, especially because knowing facts about the Bible and knowing how that ought to move you to action is not the same thing as living it out. Those are two completely different things. You can know facts about the Bible, but if it doesn't mean anything to you, if it doesn't move you to action... You've not passed the test. You took the class. You failed the final. We as a Bible-honoring church, we run into this danger a lot because many of us, we're in aggressive pursuit of biblical knowledge, and that's great. I love it. That's what I love about this church. But it can often lead to an approach to the scriptures that just looks to others and says, are you listening to this? 
This is for you. And we forget that we need to be looking at ourselves first, that we need to be applying the scriptures to our own hearts and our own lives first. We have to take the log out of our eye before we say, hey, let me take that speck out of yours. And so with, with that word of caution being said, our study these next few weeks is aimed at helping us as a church and as individuals understand why the Lord has left his church here. Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? And the book of Acts is great for this because it is all about the church. But it's not about the church in the way that we necessarily think of it. Because this is the Lord's church. We often look at this and we're trying to figure out what we can use it for, right? It's narrative. What do I do with that? A lot of times we just read it and we're just like, okay, that's nice. Paul did good stuff. What do I do now? You know, the book of Acts, it's not not a how-to manual for church growth. It isn't a model for the church to follow. And it isn't just a history book. This book It is a theological, historical record that helps the church understand who we are, how we got here, and what we're supposed to do in the world until Jesus returns. You know, when Jesus established his church, he made a statement about the church to the world. We are a history-making institution. We are a history-making institution that has one goal, one purpose, to make the reign of God known to all the earth. That is what we're here for. That is who we are. And this morning, we're going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at two history-changing events in Jesus' establishment of his church. Two history-changing events in Jesus' establishment of of his church. And the first history-changing event that we're going to take a look at is the presentation of the victorious king. The presentation of the victorious king. Verses 1 to 2. Luke writes, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The book of Acts, as we can see here, is part two of Luke's gospel. In fact, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are so intertwined that many refer to these two books as one book known as Luke-Acts. What we see here in these first two verses is that Luke, he's continuing the story. Basically, Luke wrote so much in the book of Luke that he had to split it up into two different scrolls because he wrote too much. And the first... The first book, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he summarized it by saying that all that was in there was all that Jesus began to do and teach. That means Jesus is not done yet, right? He began to do and teach. He's not finished. He began to do it. He continues to work. And the Gospel of Luke goes up until Jesus, was, Jesus ascended into heaven, but now we continue the story, which means something really important, brothers and sisters, that the book of Acts isn't about Peter and Paul, right? You even look at your Bibles, the title says, The Acts of the Apostles. And that's true to a certain extent, but who's the main character? 
Who's the one undergirding the apostles, getting, giving them the strength, giving them the spirit, moving them forward? It's Christ. Christ is the main character of the book of Acts, and he moves his church forward. He moves his church forward. It's all about Jesus. This recipient of the book, this man, Theophilus, we actually don't know too much about him. All we know is that he was a rich guy who commissioned Luke to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And why is this important to know? Well, it helps us understand Luke's purpose in writing. In Luke 1, 1 to 4, Luke makes it clear that he worked hard to compile an account of everything that had happened regarding Jesus so that Theophilus would know the exact truth of what he had been taught. Luke did this by interviewing eyewitnesses and servants of the word with careful investigation. Luke's purpose is so is to make the truth known exactly so that Theophilus and those who read these accounts later will know the exact truth of the gospel. Now you look, you look here and you see in verse 2 that Jesus ascended into heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. These apostles whom, uh, whom Jesus has chosen and given orders to are the same apostles to whom Jesus presented himself alive through many convincing proofs over 40 days. You look at that in verse 3. It says, to these he, presented, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many conv- convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You see, our Savior, he rose from the grave after being buried for three days. And what this tells us it, and what it reinforces to us is the fact that we do not worship a dead Savior. He presented himself alive to the apostles over a period of 40 days. Right? This is not a hallucination. This is not something that happened once or twice and the apostles just became convinced of it. Jesus, over a period of 40 days, proved himself alive. And not only did he prove himself alive, what did he do? What does it say? He was teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. There was much more that they needed to know. And he was giving them that instruction during that time. Jesus proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's truly risen from the dead. He's alive and that he's accomplished victory. Jesus, he ushers in the, new, the dawn of a new age. For the first time in human history, sin is completely dealt with through him. And as a result, he gathers his disciples together and he tells them what they need to do. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said... You heard from me. That's a curious statement, isn't it? He gathers them together. He's teaching them the kingdom of God. And then he says, don't leave Jerusalem. But if the gospel is supposed to go to the whole world, why are the apostles not supposed to leave Jerusalem? That should get you wondering. Jesus through his death and his resurrection, he just established himself as the king. 
He just proved himself to be Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the ultimate Davidic king. Salvation has been accomplished. And if he's the king, does the king leave the capital? No. This is his kingdom. He does not leave the capital, nor should his representatives leave the capital. If he leaves, at least the representatives should stay. We know this. If a king takes down another nation and he takes over their capital, what does that mean? It means that he's established complete victory over that nation. Don't rebel anymore. There's no hope. I am your master now. But if he just picked up and went home, left everything as it was, what's to stop the other government from reestablishing itself? Nothing. So if the church that Jesus is establishing is going to have an impact, if it's going to be a history-making institution, if Jesus is finally going to make Israel the blessing that they always were supposed to be to the nations, as we know from Genesis 12, 3, then the church needs to show Israel the hope that is found in Christ. Therefore, they need to stay in Jerusalem, and they need to tell them of what Jesus has done. Now, you also see here in verse 4 that another reason why Jesus tells the apostles to stay in Jerusalem is because it is there that the Holy Spirit, who he promised, would come to them. He would come upon them there. He promised that in John 14. Now notice that Jesus, he also compares the giving of the Holy Spirit to the baptism of John the Baptist. Why does he do that? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, back in John 1, the religious, of, uh, the religious leaders of Israel, they come up to John. And they're saying, hey, why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I am not but I'm baptizing in order to show you who's to come after me. Remember who John the Baptist is. Remember what he says. He quotes Isaiah 40. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness, and he's making the way straight for the Lord. John the Baptist points to Jesus, and he says he's pointing to the one who will come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. So what's Jesus' point here? I am fulfilling what John the Baptist said. I am fulfilling what John the Baptist said. I am he. I am the Messiah. You can have hope here because of that. Everything that God had promised, I am fulfilling. And this brings up an important point. Every single person who believes upon Christ and is by Christ baptized in the Holy Spirit is united with him. Every single one of us who has truly repented of our sins and believed upon Christ, we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit by Christ, which means we are united together as one body in Christ. That actually means something. It's not, it's not a ploy by the church to say, hey, let's have unity 
because we can't fight one another. No, it's because we are in one in Christ. We are one in Christ. When we get baptized, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. In Israel, when the Israelite people got baptized, they were identifying themselves with the rest of the nation. They were saying to the rest of the nation, we are one of you. We are a part of Israel. We identify as national Israel. And when we move baptism to the church, when we get baptized, we are identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is something that I don't think we always consider. I don't always consider it. We are sinners, totally incapable of obeying God in and of ourselves. We failed. Everything that we're supposed to be by God's perfect standard, we are not. We are not that. We have failed in every single way. And because of this, we deserve the wrath of God for our sins. But God, because he loved us, he sent us his son who lived the perfect life that we could never live. We're incapable of living this life. He is everything. He is everything that we were supposed to be and more. And when you are baptized in his Holy Spirit and you are united with him, you become everything that you were supposed to be in him. Everything. And so if you are here this morning and you are beleaguered by sin, you're cast down because of your sin, yeah, You should feel guilty. Yeah, you should feel pain. But there's hope. There's hope in the fact that, yeah, you might not be who you're supposed to be. But in Christ you are. In Christ you are. And so if you repent of your sins, oh, believer, what a great hope. What a great joy is it that is yours. But this is also why, brothers and sisters, we have to take extra care to fight against sin to pursue righteousness. Because if we are one with Christ, if we are one with Christ and we sin, what does that say? Have you ever thought about those implications? When you sin and you are one in Christ, what does that say? It says that Christ is not enough. It says that the goodness of the gospel is not more appealing to you than your sin. That your sin is so much more attractive to you than the gospel, than Christ. It says that the gospel is powerless, that it had nothing, it had no power to deliver you from your sin because you are still living in it. That's what it says. When you sin and you are one in Christ, you are dragging Christ down into the mud with you and his name is dragged through the mud with you and you make a mockery of him and the world looks at you and says, why would I want Christ? You look exactly like me. Why should I care about this Jesus who supposedly loves me? That's what you say. You say to the rest of the world, he is nothing. 
And so, brothers and sisters, I exhort you, I exhort you to join in with me to fight against sin. You know, when I said that Christ's name gets dragged into the mud with us, oh, what a joyful thing it is that our Savior is so much more holy than we are, that even when we do that, there are no stains on him. Isn't that amazing? We've seen that before, haven't we, in the Gospels? Right? Jesus touches the unclean, the ones who are supposed to make him unclean. And does he get, is he ceremonially unclean? No, he's not. He continues to be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. So praise be to God that even though when we sin, even though when we drag his name through the mud, he does not, he does not take on our sin in that way. He doesn't become unholy. He doesn't become unrighteous. He continues to be holy. But brothers and sisters, let's stop making excuses for our sins. Let's stop making excuses for our sins. Let's stop saying, get off my back. I'm still in progress. Leave me alone. I'll get there when I get there. No, no more of that. No more of that, brothers and sisters. We cannot make excuses for our sin any longer. We shouldn't have in the first place. But we have to fight because of why we're here. Why are we here? Excuse me. Why are we here? We're here because we're supposed to be a witness. We are here because we're supposed to tell the world of all that Jesus has done. We're jumping ahead a little bit here. But this is what we're supposed to do. That's why you fight sin. Because you have to give an account for your hope. And going back to the text, think about this. It's kind of interesting. Jesus could have given the Holy Spirit to his apostles anywhere. They didn't necessarily have to be in Jerusalem. Right? He could have given them the Holy Spirit when they were in Antioch. He could have given them the Holy Spirit when they were in Rome. It doesn't really matter where, but it kind of does. Right? Jesus is making Jerusalem the focal point because he is making a theological statement that he has won. Right? The gospel doesn't get out to the rest of the world if it doesn't go to Jerusalem first, if it doesn't go to his people first. Jesus demonstrates through this victory that he has authority over his own nation, and then eventually how he will have authority over the entire world. But it starts in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. And this is, in, this is important for us to consider because sometimes we unintentionally fast forward the gospel going to the Gentiles, coming to us. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to go to the whole world, but God meant for the gospel to go to his people first. It had to go to his people first. He wants them to be saved. We, as the church, do not replace the special place that Israel has in redemptive history. We have to be humble. We have to have a heart for God's chosen people because even though the majority of them are unsaved now, it is because of their temporary hardness of heart that we have the gospel. And so rather than vilifying Israel... Have mercy upon them and pray that the Lord would have mercy upon their souls. You know, as the apostles, they hear what Jesus is saying. They're processing all of this and they're getting excited. They're putting all the pieces together and they're saying, wait, Jesus is Messiah. 
He's risen. We're going to take Jerusalem. Ooh, kingdom's coming. Kingdom's coming. And that's why in verse six, Verse 6, they say, Lord, at this time, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're drawing, the apostles, they're drawing upon all their knowledge of the Old Testament. And they're saying, it's kingdom time, Jesus. Is it kingdom time? Is it time? Is it time for us to take over the whole world and show once for all that you reign? Is it time? Right, and this proves an, a minor point, but it's an important point. The apostles built all of their understanding off of the Old Testament. So we have to make sure that we understand the Old Testament. But they're, they're really excited because they see all these things. We'll get into it a little bit more in a bit. And they're saying, Lord, is it time for the kingdom to come back? And he mildly rebukes them in verse 7. He says to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Lord has fixed by his own own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus rebukes them for being excited, not because they were wrong, but they kind of lost focus a little bit. What, was their, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go to Jerusalem. They weren't supposed to fast forward ahead and get to the, all the good stuff. They were supposed to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. Why? Verse 8 tells us, right? They need to receive power. They need to receive the Holy Spirit. And this power that they receive, it's not a power to take over the world, but a power to what? Be his witnesses. To be his witnesses. That is what we're here for, brothers and sisters. We are witnesses of all that Christ has done. We proclaim his victory to everyone. The apostles' mission given to them by the Lord Jesus was to be witnesses beginning with Israel, expanding to her neighbors, and then eventually going out to the rest of the world so that all may hear what Jesus has done in order to save us. And that gives us a little insight into evangelism as well. Jesus is not calling for us to be expert apologists. He is not calling for us to win over converts. Those are important aspects of evangelism, yes. But the main thing that's important is that you be a witness, right? He didn't put the responsibility of winning converts over to the apostles. He didn't say, Hey, uh, Peter, you need to have 75 converts by next year. Okay? All right. No, he doesn't say that, right? He says, no, you be a witness. That's a very helpful insight into evangelism. right? You might be discouraged because as many times as you share the gospel, people don't come to faith. That's okay. Because it's not up to you. It's up to who? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit works in the heart, regenerates the heart so that we might believe in faith. Our job is to be a witness. Our job is to be a witness. And so going back to the apostles, as we, as we hear, as, as we see their response, or as we uh, see Jesus' rebuke of them, um, we see in verse 9 that after Jesus had said all these things, that you are to be my witnesses, he was lifted up out of their sight while they were looking on. The mission has been given. And so the king, he 
goes back up into heaven, and he waits for the time when the Lord says, now is the time for you to reclaim the kingdom. But with those last words ringing in the ears of the apostle, essentially what we have here is Jesus saying, you know what to do. It's time to go. It's time to go. It's a little comical, but when you look at it, you see that after Jesus is taking up out of their sight, the apostles, they're gazing intently into the sky while he was going, right? Basically, they're standing there, eyes wide open, probably mouth agape, just going like, whoa, what was that? And can you blame them? I mean, Jesus just was lifted up into the sky in a cloud. Something amazing just happened, but they have a job to do. They have a job to do. And, you know, they could, they could be amazed, but they could also be a little confused too, right? Wait, Jesus, you're not, you're not staying with us? I thought... It was time to, to establish Jerusalem presence. If you leave, is there hope? Can we go forward if you're not here? That could be something that's well in their minds, and that's also why, this is also kind of funny, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who had been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the, way, just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You know, even though these angels appear for a brief moment, their job was to remind the apostles, hey, you guys have a job to do. Jesus will return. He isn't gone forever. There is still hope. He's coming back, and he's going to come back this, to this very place to this very place in the same way that he went up and he will reign. And so this inspires the apostles with the utmost confidence so that they can do their job to be witnesses. Even though Jesus was taken up into heaven, his word still stands. The church carries out God's plan to lead up to Christ's return. And so it's the apostles' job to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. Now, what do we do with this? How are we as a church supposed to respond to this presentation of the victorious king? Because we have a a risen, victorious savior, we take courage. We take courage. And even though it might seem like all hope is gone, we hold out the hope of sin forgiven and Christ coming again to everyone. And so what does that look like in our lives? Well, brothers and sisters, we need to be evangelists. We need to tell people of what Christ has done. And it's not necessarily just during day camp and summer camp, but we need to to be witness at all times in every single aspect of our lives. We need to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. We can't behave in a manner that is contrary to what a godly individual is supposed to look like. You cannot, you cannot tell people that there is hope of deliverance from sin if you're still living in it. It's hypocritical. It doesn't make any sense. And though you won't be perfect, the way that you can demonstrate that hope is by confessing your sin against them, even if they're not asking for it. When you sin against someone, Don't just brush it off and just be like, well, they'll get over it. As long as I'm right before the Lord, it's fine. No. Confess it to them. Admit you're wrong. Take ownership of your sin. Take ownership of your sin. 
whether it's your poor responses, your short words, when you take ownership of that, people can see a difference. Right? We all get impatient with, it, with one another. We all get grumpy. But when you apologize to the person that you've sinned against, and you tell them, like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been short with you. I was really impatient. Will you forgive me? That stands out, doesn't it? That's completely different from the world. We make excuses all the time. Oh, sorry, I was impatient because you were taking a long time. <laughs> right? Or I was impatient because I was hungry, and so I got angry. So let's eat. Right? And then we don't take responsibility for it. But what do we say? Oh, that's, that sin's not my fault. It was the circumstances around me. It wasn't me. Take responsibility. Take ownership of that. When you confess that, you show people that there is a reason why you do that. And they might look at you and be like, well, you're just too sensitive. Who cares? Because then, after a while, after, if you establish this pattern, they look at it and they're just like, hey, you're different. Why are you different? And then you're like, oh, let me tell you. Right? And if you have trouble seeing your own sin, that's what your brothers and sisters are for. Go ask someone, hey, is there, are there any blind spots in my life? Are there any blind spots in my life? Help me see my sin so that I can repent of it and I can change. And that's the hope of the gospel, that you can change of your sin. And we all must strive to pursue righteousness because we are representatives of the king. We are ambassadors of the king. We cannot continue to make excuses, right? But also, being a witness means that we have to take courage. We have to be ready to tell the people about our faith. And, you know, don't worry if people mock you or ridicule you, um, that's okay. That's totally fine. Does it mean that you need to grow a thick skin or a thicker skin? Yeah, maybe. It probably does. But, you know, have courage. Be wise, right? Have courage and be wise. Don't, don't be brash. You have to be wise in the way that you share your faith because if the way that you carry yourself offends other people and closes their ears off to you, it doesn't matter how much love you're trying to pour out on them. They're just going to look at you, and you're like, no. They'll, they'll be like, no, you're just offensive to me. And I don't want to hear any kind of truth that you might have to bring out. And so you have to be wise. You have to win people over. Right? And that means you have to be soft. You have to be loving. There are times where you have to be firm, too. Right? There are times where you have to be firm. I know some of you, you know this, because there are times where you have individuals in your lives who just don't get it. And they continue to live in their sin, and you just want to grab them by the collar and say, why don't you get it? Right? Why don't you get it? Stop sinning. Repent of, your, repent of your sins. But you have to treat them with respect and with dignity. Not because the world tells you to, but because they are made in the image of God just like you and me. Right? And because they're made in the image of God just like you and me, we treat them with dignity. And we treat them with respect because we want for them to understand that God loves you. He really does. And it's not just someone saying that, but he does love you because he made you in his image. And if he has done that, if he's done that, then we have to have courage and we have to say, hey, this is what you need. And I'm giving it to you because I love you. That's why we do it. Right? We want to make sure that we are more faithful to the Lord than we care about what other people think of us. That should be more important. 
Now, we have so much hope in our lives because of Christ, and it is therefore our responsibility to hold out that hope to others. And this means that we have to respond to the hope that Christ offers, and that leads us to the second history-changing event, which is the faithful response of the apostles. The faithful response of the apostles. Luke shows us that the apostles, they actually listened to the angels. And in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, with these new details here in verse 12, we can actually understand why the apostles were really excited about the possibility of coming. Not only were they putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, but they were actually at a very theologically significant place when Jesus was talking to them. Luke identifies the place that they were at as the mount called Olivet. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, because the mount called Olivet is also known as the Mount of Olives. And so, as a good Bible study student, the one question that should be ringing in your mind is, Luke, you know that it's called the Mount of Olives. So why did you choose to call this the Mount called Olivet? Zechariah 14.4 tells us that in the day that the Lord comes back to reclaim the world, to fight against all the enemy nations, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the mountain will split in two, and then the Lord will go forth, and he will defeat all the rebel nations. So now looking back at it, when you have the risen Lord standing on the Mount of Olives, can you see why those apostles were excited? They're not just saying, oh, he's risen, it's time. They're saying, oh, he's risen, and the Lord stands on the Mount of Olives, does that mean that he's going to fight against the other nations? Is it that time? And so Luke, in the way that he writes this, he's basically saying, nope, it's not that time yet. It's not that time yet. So he's not going to call it the Mount of Olives. He calls it the Mount called Olivet. It's similar, but it's not that exact time. It's not that exact event. And so, what these angels had reminded the apostles in verse 11 is basically that that event is yet to come. Messiah will come back. He will stand on the Mount of Olives, but it's not now. So you have a job to do. Go do it. So the apostles, they understand this better now, which is why they go back to, to Jerusalem. And they recognize through their actions that they must bring this message of hope to Israel. And so they go back to the city, they go back to the upper room where they were meeting, and what do they do? They pray. They pray. Normally, we'd be tempted to read this and just think, oh, cool, prayer meeting. That's great. They prayed. What do I do with that? How do I apply this? Right? What we see here is the faithful response of the apostles to act upon what Jesus had revealed to them. If they didn't believe what Jesus said, if they didn't believe that they had a job to do, that it was their job to hold out hope to the world, do you think they would have prayed? No, they wouldn't have. But they pray in faithful response to what they know is true. They know that Jesus is coming back. 
they know that the gospel has to go forth. So they pray. They pray in obedience and in confidence, knowing that God will do exactly what he, will, what he said. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and the rest of the world. And so they pray. And they're not asking. They're not asking for the Holy Spirit to come. They're not asking for that. Because Jesus says, passive tense, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not you need to pray for the Holy Spirit to be baptized. But God himself, Jesus himself, will baptize the apostles in the Holy Spirit. So they're not praying for that. But they are praying in response to this mission. They know that it is their job to go forth, to have courage, and to hold out the hope to Israel. And so they pray for God to enable them, to strengthen them, to go forth in response. Now, prayer meetings then are important for us to consider because when we get together as a church and we pray, we are telling each other and the rest of the world when they ask you, what are you, what are you going to church for? I'm going to pray. Pray? Why would you go to church to pray? Because I believe. Because I believe and in response to the truth, I know that I need to pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is therefore incredibly significant. Now going to verse 15. It says, at this time, or in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, you know, whether they're still in the upper room or not, it's not really clear. But if they were in the upper room, it was probably in the house of someone who was really wealthy. Um, because we see that we have 120 people here at the church, including the apostles, right? including the apostles, and then Jesus' family members. So you see 120 people, and you're like, whoa, church growth. Is this, therefore, the evidence within the scriptures that we can use Acts as a model for church growth? No, it's not. Why? Look at the text. Did the apostles actually do anything? To grow the church? No. So who did? Jesus. Jesus grew his church. He made them from nothing into a congregation of about 120. And what's the point? Jesus has, Jesus has power to make something out of pretty much nothing. And that adds legitimacy to the church because it is his power that advances the church. It's his power that grows the church. That's why this is not a model. That's why this is not an instruction booklet. Right? But Jesus himself is the one who grew his church. Which shows his authority. Now, going back to what Peter was saying. He says that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Jesus. Now, we'll come back to what this fulfillment language means in just a moment. But we, what we see here is that Peter, he's making a clear statement. Judas is out. He's not one of the apostles anymore. And so we have to replace him. 
we have to replace him. Now, the state of Judas, uh, we, we have here in, this, um, in, in these next two verses, verses 18 to 19, the state of Judas, the way that he's considered is seen right here. Luke gives us these editorial comments, and he says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, you might be looking at that, and you're just wondering, like, ew, gross, Luke, why would you put that in, in the Bible? That's disgusting. Um, and we have to remember that Luke is a theologian, right? So everything that he writes down is theological. There is a point to this. So obviously, Luke didn't just put it in here because he's a medical doctor, and he's fascinated by it. He's putting in there for a point. When Judas hung himself, and we don't know necessarily, like some people have said that when Judas hung himself, he was dealing with a, with a heart issue, and so when he hung himself, his heart exploded, and that's why everything kind of came out. Um, we don't know if that's true or not. Um, other people have, and I think this is probably the better, uh, the better I guess, uh, interpretation of it, is that when he hung himself, either the tree snapped and so he fell off a cliff and um, exploded, or the rope that he hung himself with slipped off the tree, and then he fell onto the cliff, and then he, um, and then that's why his intestines gushed out. Now, why am I dwelling on this? Well, because, because, in the scriptures, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three, what does it say? Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Judas hung himself on a tree. He is the object of divine wrath, of divine curse. And when Luke brings out these gory, disgusting details, the reason why he's bringing out those details is because he's showing people, yeah, Judas is cursed because he hung on a tree, but it's not just because of that. He is, he is the intense he is the object of intense divine curse because he rebelled against the king, because he betrayed the king. And that's actually really, really important to consider. Right? Jesus died to break the curse of sin and death. But that does not mean that, any, that no one can get cursed after that. Because right? Judas is obviously the, the object of divine curse. So it brings that to our attention. It makes us aware of the fact that just because Jesus died to defeat the curse doesn't mean that you cannot be cursed, which means that if you are here this morning and you have not repented of your sin, you are still in trouble with God, that you are still an object of divine wrath and curse because of your sin. Not because God hates you specifically so much that he just wants to throw you into hell, but it's your sin that makes you the object of his wrath. So I beg you, I implore you, do not go the way of Judas. Repent of your sin and believe upon Christ and you will not be in trouble with the Lord anymore. That grace and that mercy is still available to you. Now, returning to Peter's statement in verse 20, Luke, he continues on explaining what Peter means. And Peter quotes two psalms here. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. 
Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who had accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So when we see the word fulfill here, we have to be very careful of thinking about it in terms of prophecy, because he quotes what? Psalms, right? Are Psalms prophecies? No, they are not. They are not prophecies. So when we look at this fulfillment language, we have to be very careful by saying like, well, Peter doesn't really know what he's saying. He's just using the Bible in any way that he pleases to make his point. So uh, just because he wants to have 12 apostles, that's not true. Um, the New Testament authors, they knew the Old Testament. They were using it exactly as it was meant to be used. And when you look at verse 16, Peter writes, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Now, if, if Peter meant to say that it was prophesied, wouldn't he say, which the Holy Spirit prophesied by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, he knows, that, he knows that word. He would use that word if that was what he meant. But he says, which the Holy Spirit foretold in order to show that the Holy Spirit was talking about this before. Right? The Holy Spirit was talking about this before in David. These psalms that, that are quoted, they're imprecatory psalms. They're imprecatory prayers. They're prayers that pronounce curse upon these two individuals that rebelled against David. And what God is showing here is that When you go up against the Davidic king, you become the object of God's wrath. How much more so then will Judas, who goes up against the ultimate Davidic king, become the object of God's wrath? Well, that he will be removed and that that another man takes his office. So God is the one who tells Peter, Peter, you need 12 apostles. You can't do this with 11. Why? That should always get you questioning. Why? Why is it? does it have to be 12? It has to be 12 because of the unique function that the early church had to Israel. The, the early church was supposed to be there to show Israel, Israel, this is the way that you were supposed to go. There is a way back to the Lord. It's not found with the Pharisees. It's not found in the temple, but it is found only in Christ. This is the way that you need to go. And so you see, if the church was supposed to point Israel back to the Lord, they can't be 11. They have to be 12. Because if it was only 11, that means, uh uh-oh, one of the tribes got lost. That's not what happened, right? That's not true. There is still hope for you, Israel, and it's found in us. It's found in Christ. We can go back to the Lord. And so that's why Peter says that whoever fulfills, whoever takes over Judas's role as an apostle has to be a witness from the baptism of John all the way up to his ascension. Why? Because if they're going to join the apostles as witnesses of Jesus Christ, they have to be there for everything so that they can say, yes, we've seen it from the very beginning. We didn't come midway through. We've seen it all. And we can attest to you the fact that he is indeed the Christ. He is indeed the Messiah. And there is hope in him. And so we see in verses 23 to 26 that two men are put forward, Joseph and Matthias. And these are the men that fulfilled that that, uh, qualification. And so you see it again, the apostles, they pray. They pray and they say, Lord, we know what we're supposed to do. 
And you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, you choose which one of these men that you want to fill up Judas' spot. Just as Jesus chose the 12 disciples originally, he will choose the 12th apostle to, f- to fill the, the, the apostleship. And so, because the Holy Spirit had not been given to them yet, they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11, to the 11 apostles. It's an Old Testament method that was used to discern God's will. And it's the last time we see it. So we don't do that anymore. That's why we don't do that anymore. But in order to be a faithful witness to Israel, as Jesus called them to be, it was absolutely necessary for the apostles to add Matthias to the 11. And this is a reminder for us today that we have an important job to be a witness to the rest of the world. And yes, it is very important for us to care about the other nations. That's absolutely true. But we can't forget about Israel, brothers and sisters. We can't forget about Israel. Because if we forget about Israel, if we kind of let them go on their own way, we're basically saying to our adoptive brothers and sisters, you don't matter. Right? Remember, we don't replace them. We are grafted into Israel. We share their blessings. And so if God could forget them and replace them with us as the church, you and I should have no hope whatsoever of the fact that we, our salvation is secure in the Lord. But because it is, that's why we ought to have a concern for everyone, especially Israel, because we as the church, we call Israel back and we say, come back to our Father. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're out of time, but obedience or faith, faith to what God has said, it shows up in obedience. And this morning, we've learned about how God starts the ch- how God sets the church into motion. He sets the church into motion. We are a history-making institution. We proclaim to Israel and to the rest of the world there is a way back to God because Jesus is alive. And because he's one. And because of that, we hold out the hope of the gospel to every single person. We are witnesses of Christ. And, just, and being a witness doesn't mean that you just stand there and say, oh yeah, I saw that. No, it means that you go and you tell others of all that Christ has done. That leads us to prayer so that we can be empowered to do what we're supposed to do. If we as a church are all about God, we must demonstrate that in all that we are, and in all that we do. And so may Christ continue to cause his word to go forth to the praise and honor of his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this book, for this chapter where we got to see how you established the church, how you got the apostles to understand the mission that they have. We pray that you would help us to understand it as well. Help us to be moved to action to understand our purpose as witnesses so that we may glorify and honor you in everything that we do. May we remember that the most important thing that we have been called to do is to be a witness. And may we do that even in the littlest details of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your grace. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.